It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling is the voice of mountain and forest wildlife and is hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Be ready for an increase in altitude and a relentless pursuit of the creatures that dwell there. Welcome to The Higher Calling. This is Chester Moore, and we are in the midst of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic. In our corner of the world here, what we're dealing with is wildlife, fishing and hunting in American mountains and forests. And there is, believe it or not, a lot of implications for this situation that are happening. So fishermen are being locked out of certain areas, a lot of public lands closed. And to talk about this and also some legislation that no matter if there's a pandemic or not, it's still going to impact hunters and conservationists. We have Joe Bitar, Executive Director of the Houston Safari Club Foundation. Thanks for coming on Higher Calling. Hey, Chester. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm trying to take in all the news and digest it and see what's real and what's not real because the world sure has changed in the last three weeks, hasn't it? It has. I look at, uh, let's see, what's the good analogy? I look at uh, consumption of news like when you open a package of Oreo cookies Mm -hmm. and you're in that first row and you're sitting there watching, binge watching something at night and you probably shouldn't jump to the second row. Yeah, that's kind of... You know, consumption of news in small doses, you know, five Oreos are good, 20 probably not so good. So I'm trying to, like you, I'm trying to take in the facts from objective standpoints and data and statistics, but not come home and flip on the news every night and go to bed with the news on. Um, It's just, I think it does your psyche good to get away from it for a little bit. I think there is no question about that. But one thing we've got to get out there is there's so much rumor, innuendo, et cetera, about how this is impacting hunting and fishing and conservation. So uh, we, we spoke on my radio show, More Outdoors, a couple of weeks ago when this first kind of happened. You were already seeing some impacts in terms of like, you know, Canadian bear hunting and borders being shut and things like that. So what's kind of happening now? Um, you know, everybody's just really on standby. Um, let's, let's talk about misperceptions a little bit. Uh, a lot of people are thinking, Oh, national parks are closed. State Mm -hmm. parks are closed. Um, there, there are limited areas. It's a state by state cases as to what's open and what's not. Um, you know, Texas, Texas hunting and fishing season is open. They just released snapper dates for this year. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I encourage people to go and look uh, state by state as to where they're going, as to what's open and what's not. But the majority of outdoor access is fully open. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it, it's broken down a lot to what I'm seeing, like um, in, the, in the National Forest in Texas, for example, um, a lot of the... The park areas are open, but the trails are still open. I mean, the park are closed, but the trails are still open. So a lot of the facilities in some of these places are closed, but like trails and hiking and access to hunting areas are still wide open. Right, right. And on the international level, of course, with travel bans, that's totally shut down. Um, So what we encourage people to do is, whether they're members or affiliates of ours, we're encouraging them. Uh, to stay in contact with us through social media or through our newsletters and find out what's happening and where it's happening. Uh, I've spoken with a lot of outfitters in North America and uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, and 
there was an initial knee-jerk reaction to cancel hunts. And what we're doing is, uh, you know, some of these guys are booked for the next two years. Some are not. Mm -hmm. Uh, What they're encouraging people to do is to call them and see if they can reschedule for later in the year uh, as as the dust settles and things start to lift a little bit. Because, um, you know, you know this better than anybody. If people aren't going to places and there's no ecotourism dollars, and there's no hunting dollars, Mm -hmm. um, the poachers move in. Um, funds aren't available for water management, wildlife management, habitat management. So what outfitters and professional hunters are encouraging people to do is to call them and try to reschedule versus cancel, um, strictly to keep the pipeline of funds flowing through for conservation efforts. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, if you even look here, like in, in America, for example, if you have a spring bear hunt booked in Canada, maybe you can change that to a fall bear hunt. There's opportunities like that. And, right, correct, correct. And, and so, and another another thing that I thought of um, was like, let's take a look at bear hunting in America. Let's say, in, or in Canada, or let's say some of these states do have to shut down, or people can't afford the outfitter fee, or can't get there, or whatever, because of this. You're going to have in some of these areas a whole lot more bears, for example, that aren't harvested perhaps in a year, and then you may see some problems interacting with people because, as you know. Hunting a lot of these larger predators is one of the means we manage them and keeping from so many human conflicts. Right, exactly. Um, I think you're seeing things in Italy and Spain and in other parts of the country uh, where you know people are residing and sheltering in place, and wildlife is coming back in areas where they've never seen it before. It's starting to encroach on um, you know city city areas. Uh, waterways uh, are clearing. Um, you know, you look at some of the global maps for air pollution, uh, and those have started to cut down a little bit as well. So you're, you're starting to see wildlife, uh, and human animal or human wildlife conflicts start to occur, uh, on a more frequent basis. They're, they're seeing animals in places they haven't seen them in a long time. Yeah. There's a video, uh, at a resort in Mexico with a jaguar walking right down the middle of the road there. And, um, you know, there's stuff like that happening. And I think this may be an opportunity. Of course, we wish we didn't have to have this opportunity. But for the sport hunting community who's conservation minded to say, look, you know, you're not going to like that mountain lion showing up in your yard or that black bear showing up in your yard or whatever, that feral hog. And hunters, whether they get the credit or not, are definitely a barrier to that because the excess animals are not being taken out. As well as if you take areas that ones that still have hound hunting for bears, you know, if they don't have any hounds chasing them that year, you know, they don't feel pressured. So they'll move closer into areas because typically some of these urban suburban areas have lots of free food, for, especially for animals like bears. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating thing, and I'm, I'm keeping a real close eye on that. Something else I'm keeping my eye on is the opportunistic nature of animal rights people. Uh, got an interesting news release from the Colorado, uh, Colorado uh, Parks and Wildlife Department that there have been robocalls that people are getting saying that hunting and fishing is closed. And I'm thinking, who would benefit from a robocall or think their agenda is being forced? I mean, I can't see someone making money off that. So I thought that has to be some kind of an animal rights activist because we're seeing a lot of rumors and innuendo, and I've been monitoring some of the Facebook groups of some of these animal rights groups, and they're absolutely unhinged with this thing. I've heard and seen that as well. Um, I've also, I'm sure you're aware of this, but in, uh, you know, it's kind of like the perfect storm along with everything else that's going on. 
is that uh, there was a recent court order in the state of New Mexico where there were petitions filed to release the contact information for all uh, big game applicants and some categories of hunters, and that was uh, recently handed down, and that is going to open up um, – that's going to open up attacks on hunters by anti-hunting groups because if they can get this, their hand on this contact information and start harassing hunters in the state of New Mexico, that sets the dangerous precedent for other states, depending on their uh, depending on their respective privacy laws. Yeah, I, as someone who has received a death threat from some of these cr- crazy people before, um, it's not fun. And um, especially as in the social media age, we've seen, uh, matter of fact, a young lady I know received some celebrity tweeted her social media information thinking she was this other woman who had posed with a giraffe. What is it? wasn't even her, but they look kind of alike. And because wow. this lady was a member of SCI, I believe, they saw that on her profile. They went crazy, and she received death threats for two months. And um, so this is definitely something to uh, to keep an eye on. And as we go along here, I mean, there's still, even though there's this virus, there's still these political threats out there. And I know the Houston Safari Club Foundation has um, created a political action committee just for that. Right. So tell us a little bit about the PAC. Yeah, in the fall of last year, we've been talking about this for a couple of years now, but in the fall of last year, we officially launched uh, uh, in our Houston Safari Club Foundation as a 501c3. Nonprofit. We have a, a 501c4 division called Houston Safari Club without the name foundation attached to it. And attached to that is the Houston Safari Club PAC or Political Action Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was officially launched in the fall of last year. It is a federal non-connected PAC, which means basically we are raising money to support candidates that are pro-hunting, pro-conservation, pro-Second Amendment that are running for federal seats, whether it's in the House or the Senate. Um, our primary focus in our first year of operation will be, of course, Texas candidates. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of districts in Texas that are coming open where incumbents are not running. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of districts in Texas, of course, just in general because of the size of the state. Um, so there's a lot of representatives out there that we are vetting for their positions on hunting conservation and Second Amendment. And, of course, the only Senate race that's coming up in the state of Texas is Senator Cornyn's race. He's the longtime incumbent, mm-hmm. House Majority Whip. Um, and so we're looking, you know, we're looking at Senator Cornyn as well. But um, the House races are what are of particular interest to us. You know, and that really is uh, such an important thing. I also deal a lot with just the zoological wildlife world uh, in my and what I do and that group of people is not nearly as politically active as the hunting community. And I've told some of the people before, if you ever want to get your act together, because the, the zoological world, especially the smaller zoological world, is getting hammered by animal rights groups because there's no political cohes- cohesiveness. And if it wasn't for PACs and things like this, organizations like Houston Safari Club Foundation has, I have no doubt the landscape of hunting in North America would be radically different now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we work, um, you know, we work looking at these candidates. We go to D.C. every year. We talk to these we talk to these people that are in office and to better understand their positions on these types of issues. And so that they better understand our our uh, position on these types of issues. We work closely with the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, and the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, which is a really cool organization. Um, they are on the forefront. They have offices in D.C. and they are on the forefront of pushing um 
pushing legislation and supporting legislation that is pro-hunting, pro-conservation, pro-Second Amendment, land access, all the things that are important to the hunting community. And, uh, you know, it's a bipartisan group, which is really neat because Mm -hmm. you see people from both sides of the aisle that hunting is in their blood. The outdoors are in their blood. It doesn't matter what their political affiliations are on a grand scale. They are there to support hunting. And so that's nice to go sit in a room with, you know, 50, 60, 75 people at a luncheon uh, with representatives there, House and Senate, from both sides of the aisle that are working towards this common cause. They may differ on other issues, but when it comes to hunting in the outdoors there, um, they're on the same side of the table. So, uh, And that, that, that group is involved, of course, uh, at the legislative le- level, also with House uh, Committees on Natural Resources, the Agricultural uh, Department, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and Department of the Interior as well. Yeah, and that's all so incredibly important because it's not just like anti-hunting legislation. There's like, you know, mining in areas they're trying to do and stuff that could mess up trout streams and all kind of different things that fall into the, the banner of conservation here. I want to look at a few things that are kind of on the agenda, like H.R. 3742, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Where does that stand right now? Um, Recovering America, America's Wildlife Act, or RAWA as we call it, save a few words. Uh, that's been around for several years mm-hmm. uh, in several iterations. It, it seems like every legislative session, it almost crosses the finish line and something happens. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, the, whether there's a, uh, a budget standstill in D.C. or whether there's an election or something comes up and it just does not cross the finish line. Um, this current piece of legislation in its current format is a bipartisan piece of legislation. It's got over 250 sponsors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's being presented to the House leadership, or it was before the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic broke out. And basically what it does, it establishes a, a funding model for uh, conservation for fish and wildlife in the 21st century. And it redirects $1.3 billion annually in, in revenues. And these are existing revenues. This is not new taxes. This is not solicitation of new funds. These are existing revenues going to state and fish and wildlife agencies to implement their plan. Um, so what it's doing is it's taking money that's already out there and putting it in the right places for the states to manage their wildlife and habitat management programs on an individual basis. Um, as you as you can tell, I mean, I talked to a guy yesterday with uh, the Department of Interior. He thinks basically it goes down except for the legislators sure. that are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things have been hold to put us been put on hold and put aside. So, uh, unfortunately, I think all wildlife and all outdoor legislation and pretty much everything outside of uh, economic stimulus packages and relief plans related to COVID-19 have kind of been put on the back burner for at least the next 30 days. But this this piece of legislation is still alive. It's still out there. And hopefully, after all the dust settles with us, that we'll be able to go ahead and move forward. I think it's got its best chance of passing this year than it has probably in the past years. You know, I can see a lot of bipartisan support behind something like that. Then you have a bill like um, HB 5104, prohibiting the import, sale, and possession of African elephants, lions, leopards, black rhinos, white rhinos, and giraffes. And I can imagine with the Tiger King thing out there, everybody is going crazy about cats and everything. I can imagine when you get to a bill specifically like this, it probably whittles down a little bit more support. You might have to work a little bit harder to convince them on the fence. Yeah, it, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, and claim uh, guilt for watching The Lion King. My wife and I started watching an episode <laughs> and we got hooked into it. And uh, 
every step of the way that I watched, I thought, why am I watching this? I'm telling um, you. I, it's one of those things I, I couldn't get away from it. But it's we a were car like, wreck. We're, yeah, we're halfway into it. We're going to go ahead and finish this thing out, you know. Um, uh, you know, I'm thinking, I want to watch the new season of Ozark. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got into it and we're like, okay, we put this much time into it. We're going to finish this. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave everybody's judgment of that docu, docudrama or whatever you want to call it to their, to their own opinions. Sure. But, um, anytime, Chester, as you know, anytime you have issues or topics that are related to bears, mm-hmm. wolves, cats, that sort of thing. Um, I think that there's an unfortunate and misguided perception that these animals are pettable animals um, from cartoons and movies over the years mm-hmm. that are big, cuddly, hug- huggable animals, and they're not. They're wild animals. Cats being included in, in Tiger King or whatever. Um these are wild animals yes. uh, that are faced with their own set of circumstances, whether it be uh, urban sprawl, human wildlife conflict, poaching, all those sorts of factors that are that are threats to these species, and we're fully cognizant of that. Um, prohibiting the import and sale and possession of African elephants, lions, leopards, black rhinos, white rhinos, and giraffes. Um, that piece of legislation, HB 5104, is a wide net, if you will, to basically shut down the importation of animals mm-hmm. that are coming in from Africa, South Africa, and these other areas. Um, while we fully recognize that all those factors I talked about before, threats to these species, we also fully understand that probably the greatest threat to these species are the things I just mentioned before, especially poaching. Sure. So these game animals need to be managed like any other animal from the perspective of we need to be able to provide habitat, water sources, uh, dollars and funding to be able to support these species. We are against the illegal poaching and importation and transportation of these animals and their body parts. Uh, But you have to have money going in to keep these animals going, keep them alive. And that money comes primarily from people that go over from other countries that hunt them, that pay these fees, um, that pay these outfitters. The outfitters and the professional hunters that run these concessions, own or manage these concessions, are the ones that are keeping these animals in existence. That's that's it in its you know rawest form. So when somebody says, "Oh, all these animals are threatened," or "All these animals are endangered," or whatever, Mm -hmm. however they tend to tag it, to throw a, a broad net across a group of animals to say we want to totally import the sale and possession of these. Is, is a dangerous precedent to set. Um, so we are we are fully opposed to this. Mm-hmm, we sure. think that animal species need to be managed by species, by animal counts, geographically, in a, in a scientific manner, not by just saying these animals are cute, these animals, uh, it's wrong to hunt them, and we just think it's wrong, so we want to go ahead and stop everything. Yeah, it's a dangerous thing because of what we've talked about before on my radio program several times, the lack of money going in. Um, you know, you make a lot of people poachers all of a sudden because there's no income and they got to eat. And, um, you know, it's really easy for Americans and Europeans sitting on their couch to, to, to want to manage Africa. But one of the things they don't realize about Africa in particular is it's not a country. It is a continent with many sovereign independent nations who choose to manage their wildlife as they see fit. 
and differently. And um, while you have lion numbers going down, that's a lot of the lion numbers going down are in countries where lions are not hunted, for example. Right. Because there's not the efforts of hunters and sport hunters to fund and protect all those animals. And uh, But I, I know just from someone who deals with people with animals all the time, like at our Kingdom Zoo Wildlife Center here, we do our wishes program where we grant wildlife encounters of kids have a critical illness or loss of parent or a sibling. And every once in a while, we'll get suckered into letting a scout group come in and visit, right? So we had some Girl Scouts come in, and I have a full-body mountain lion in here, okay? Mountain, mount, not, not, not live, mounted. And one of the moms, as I'm doing the presentation for the kids, I talked about, do you know what endangered species is? And, and then I tell them what endangered species is. And I'm talking about conservation. And the mom leans over and tells the lady next to her, you know, that mountain lion he shot over there is an endangered species too. And I just, ha- I normally wouldn't do this, but I was, he's caught me in the right mood. I said, excuse me, what'd you say? She goes, you know, those are endangered. I said, no, they're not. She goes, I guarantee you there. I said, lady, I don't want to be disrespectful, but you picked the argument with the wrong dude today about this. And uh, and she Googled it and it said species of least concern. Right. But people get this idea. And I know it has to be a little harder to maybe get someone who's on the fence and doesn't have a hunting background, maybe behind something like protecting this, allowing these trophies to keep coming in from Africa. than it would be like restoring waterways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, you know, the equation is not, there's, there's a lot of scientific data out there. Yes. Um, there's a lot of facts. There's a lot of figures and that sort of thing. But the simple equation is, if hunters don't pay to go on these hunts, the people that run these pieces of land, I call them pieces of land, they're very large concessions, whether mm-hmm. they own them, they've been handed down to generations, or whether they lease them from the government. If hunters don't go and they don't spend money, the outfitter cannot pay their trackers. They cannot pay their anti-poaching units. They cannot pay anybody that helps them manage that land. Well, if that happens, the cascade of effects is less people on that land that are legally harvesting animals, that are legally hunting, opens it up for the poachers are there. Mm-hmm. So they're just they're just looking for an opportunity. And because because they're there for different situations, whether they're just bad people or because they need the money sure. and they're making you know pennies on the dollar to go do this uh, to perform these dangerous poaching acts and, and illegal poaching acts. But let's say you had a lease in Texas and it was a thousand acres and you bought this place and hunted it for a few years and then you went five to 10 years and didn't hunt it. Guess what? If nobody ever came on that property, somebody's going to be on that property hunting it. For sure. They're going to go in there because you're not there. You're not monitoring it. You're not keeping it up. You're not doing that sort of thing. Now take that and multiply that times 100 on a concession in South Africa or anywhere. It opens it up to no money to pay people to manage your land, which means no crime prevention, no anti-poaching, no anything. That is the biggest threat because while some people may think, oh, hunters are people shooting animals to put on the walls, the majority of hunters whether they're in the U.S. or worldwide, they're hunting for meat. Now, there's a lot of people who go to South Africa, or there's some people who go to South Africa. I won't, I won't, you know, throw a big generalization out there. Some people go to South Africa that they either bring the meat back or they donate it to the ranch, or which in turn donates it to the local community. And I know some people who go there, and they actually seek out organizations in countries where they can harvest meat, 
donate it. And yeah, they may they may want to go back and they may want to have a mount for their wall as as a, as sure. a, a memento of their trip. But these things all have a cascade of effects if they don't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the generalization is people are going to shoot animals to put on the walls is, is not a true thing. And I'm preaching to the choir here with you, but oh, sure. But our listeners, some, you know, some we got of your, from your listeners, you know, that, that are coming across your podcast need to understand that, you know, um, I mean, a lot of us that are hunters go out to hunt for sustenance. I mean, I, you know, when this thing first started happening with COVID-19 and I went to the grocery store and my wife was going to make my favorite dish for me, which is uh, an Italian ground pork dish. And I couldn't find ground pork. I was like, you know what? This thing is real. Um, yeah, for sure. So I immediately went to our place and was lucky enough to, to harvest an axis dough. And my freezer's full for the next year. Yep. So I don't have to worry about ground pork or ground burger or roast or whatever, not being on the shelves at the grocery store. Um, you know, toilet paper and, and uh, hand sanitizer is a different story. Well, that's a different issue. <laughs> but, but you know, you know, we can, as I like to say, adapt, improvise, overcome on that front as well. But, um, you know, I, there's a lot of mis- misperceptions out there. And I think what is key in this whole conversation is, is that a couple of things. We need to be informed. We need to look at data. We need to understand the repercussions of doing or not doing certain things For sure. in all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. But specifically in this, in this conversation to wildlife and habitat. And I really think that, you know, I hate to be sentimental or philosophical here, but I think we're at a time in our, in our world existence where there are three groups of people uh, in regards to hunting. There are the hunting groups, there's anti-hunting groups, and then there's the non-hunting groups. Mm -hmm. The non-hunting groups are the people, as I've said before, are the people that may not understand why hunters do what they do, but they're not opposed to it. In fact, research over the past three to five years that has been collected on national databases from national surveys that says the non-hunting public, they may not be hunters, but they're not against it. Yep. So... We need to all get in a room, whether it's at our conferences, at our conventions, at our meetings. We need to start talking between the hunting groups and the non-hunting groups, not the antis, because you're never going to change their position. I, I don't think that they're fully informed on the benefits of hunting and how those dollars trickle down. But have these other two groups need to start talking to each other and going, hey, Come out to come outdoors with me, whether it's fishing for catfish in a stock pond or whether it's hunting for you know, quail or a dove or whatever. Um, and I think I've talked to a lot of people personally that have said, you know, hey, listen, uh, can we get some meat or do you guys have any extra axes or, you know, do you have any fish? You know, just just as a backup, just in case, because, you know, I can't go to the grocery store or I don't want to be exposed, whatever. Um, these groups have got to start talking to each other and we've got to invite each other into each other's homes and start having these conversations. Um, I totally agree. There's a, there's a lot of benefit to this. And um, this is one of the reasons this podcast exists is like, it's about mountain and forest and stream wildlife and hunting is a part of that, but I'm going to have entire shows just about the wildlife sometime because one of the things I want to do is because I have grown up and the reason I'm a conservationist is because I'm a hunter and a fisherman is to reach out to some of those people who might just like photography or hiking, and they'll hear about this incredible North American model of wildlife conservation, and they may not ever pick up a bow like you and I would do, but they may vote for something if they know the hunting part helps conservation, and in the end, if that happens, we all win. 
Right, right. And, you know, I, I personally fully recognize, and, and as do most people in, in the outdoor community, um, there's there are bad apples in every single group. For there sure. Are, there are people out there that hunt, proclaim themselves as conservationists, that do things the wrong way. You know, sitting on animals in photos and posting on social media, um, I think highly disrespectful to animals. Um, people out there that are poaching or shooting from the road or shooting at night, you know, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Those things are what gain the most visibility. Yep. They cause the most waves, and they reflect the most poorly on the hunting community. Community. And while I know that most of the people I hunt with and have been affiliated with in the hunting and outdoor community are genuinely good people, mm-hmm. they're not out there just to shoot. They're not out there just to, you know, pose with an animal. Um, the, the, the thing that rises to the top, unfortunately, are those people who do things the wrong way, and that's what draws the most emotional reactions and the most finger-pointing and the most of, you know, hunt, all hunters are bad, and here's why. And there's no question the idea of how we present what we do has never been more contentious on the world scene, and there's never been a moment where we're going to have to maybe reevaluate how we do some of this. Never apologize but maybe just go, maybe, you know, maybe the girl in Ireland posing with a sex toy in the Ram wasn't a good idea. You know, I mean, right. just maybe I'm maybe I'm insane. Maybe I'm behind the times. But, you know, that and that's an extreme part. But, you know, couples kissing over the lion they shot and, you know, a lot of this stuff we're going to have to to reevaluate. And there are bad apples. You know, one thing I, and I appreciate you saying that because. You know, people act like poachers aren't hunters, and in America, at least, most of the poachers out there are licensed hunters. They're not the average licensed hunter. They're a very small part, but they come from hunting families. You're not going to see an anti-hunter out road hunting at night, you know? Right. And we have to expose those bad apples and be honest with uh, with ourselves in the community and say, hey, we're not going to tolerate this. We're going to turn this stuff in. The majority of us are great people who care about the resource And at the end of the day, if we can keep that message, in my opinion, focused on we care about the resource, we want to renew that resource and look back at the history of what we've done, I think we're going to not only survive, but thrive. And um, maybe even something like this pandemic, we can reach out to our neighbors and say, hey, man, I got a lot of extra pork. I got some extra axis. Although I know very few people who would share axis. That's probably like the few thing everybody stands you with, right? Because axis is so right. good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah if, exactly. If you have any, you can donate to the Chester Moore Axis Meat Foundation. And uh, it's currently <laughs> devoid of any. But uh, anyway, it's been a great conversation. I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you calling in and telling us about the Houston Safari Club Foundation pack and your insight to what's happening with this COVID-19 thing. And if someone wants more information on the Houston Safari Club Foundation, where do they go? Yeah, they can go to the website at wehuntwegive.org, or they can go to the PAC website, which is hsc-pac.org. All right, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Chester. Always good to talk to you. Higher Calling is brought to you by Texas Fishing Game Magazine, our official sponsor. You can check the online edition out at fishgame.com and also subscribe to their e-newsletter. And if you'd like to me to personally subscribe you to that newsletter, because I actually can do that, you can email me at chester at chestermore.com. Fishgame.com is not only wildlife and fisheries in Texas, but we cover things going on nationwide. And you definitely need to subscribe to the newsletter. Three updates a week 
killer, killer stuff put together by yours truly. Once again, Higher Calling is sponsored by Texas Fishing Game Magazine at fishgame.com. You've been listening to The Higher Calling, hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Contact him at chester at chestermore.com. Follow him at the Chester Moore on Instagram and his blog at highercalling.net.